Welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast, which has accidentally become a history of jazz podcast on account of the copyright-expired music that kicks off every episode. It's going to be interesting when I give an interview to Downbeat Magazine or whatever several years from now, and I'll tell them, yeah, uh, believe it or not, I Might Be Wrong did not start as an all-jazz podcast. That happened later, daddy-o. But you are listening at the moment when that transformation began. Because this is sort of part three in this odyssey that began with a guy named Freddie Keppard. Freddie, in the late teens, early 20s, was known as the king of jazz. Freddie was a black guy, as most people in jazz were back then. Freddie was asked to make a record. He declined. Instead, the first jazz record came from a group of white guys called the Original Dixieland Jazz Band. And this record is also from a white jazz musician who became very popular. He became known at some point as the king of jazz, and his name was Paul, I am not making this up, Whiteman. For fuck's sake, his name was White Man. That, look, if you know this podcast, you know that I frequently roll my eyes at claims of cultural appropriation. I think it's silly these days when some people will say, oh, white people shouldn't cook ramen. I feel it's obvious that... Pretty much every creative endeavor in the history of humanity has involved people borrowing from each other. That includes a lot of borrowing across cultural lines, and in fact, a lot of the best stuff is made borrowing across cultural lines. So I think that is all good. That being said, Paul Whiteman becoming the first big jazz name, that's going to... First of all, the name is too on the nose. It's like Pam Anderson being Pam Huge Knockers. Have a little subtlety, Paul Whiteman. And also, it's just, it's fucked up. He wasn't the best jazz guy. He was the best white jazz guy. You're not the king of jazz. You're the king of jazz within this category that we have decided is much more acceptable to us. Anyway, Paul Whiteman was actually a kind of interesting and kind of controversial jazz character. Some people like him, some people don't. It's all explained in that trashy reality show, Ken Burns Jazz. But anyway, you are listening to Paul Crackerass Whiteman. Crackerass was his middle name. Don't make fun of it. It's a family name. It's Dutch. And this song, by the way, is Whispering. This was the number two song of 1920. Number one was the Macarena. This is the number two song of 1920. Sold two million copies because your options back then were to either buy this record or die in a mine accident. So good for Paul Honkyman, I suppose. Hello, welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. This is the audio version of content that I put up on my Substack, which is called I Might Be Wrong and can be found at imightberwrong.substack.ru.mil. Last part is not true. Today's episode is called The Lesson from Iraq That Gives Me Hope for Ukraine. I wanted to write this because it seems to me that the war in Ukraine is going very badly for Russia. I am always skeptical of these reports that we get. It's a war. It's hard to tell what's going on. I don't know what Russia's expectations were. I don't know how they thought this would go, but it seems like it's going really badly, and I'm starting to wonder how badly from their perspective. And I find myself thinking back to the Gulf War and how a lot of the decision-making back then kind of baffles me to this day. So the episode is called The Lesson from Iraq That Gives Me Hope for Ukraine. Subtitle, It's Not the Lesson You Might Think. It is honestly hard to describe 
how badly I want Ukraine to win this war. I am legitimately moved by the acts of heroism and the stirring resilience we've seen from a lot of people in Ukraine who, quite frankly, hadn't exactly won the life on easy street lottery to begin with. And yes, I know that some of what I'm seeing is probably exaggerated, but if only a fraction of the stories are true, then what I'm seeing is inspiring. Not to mention, I am very impressed that between Russian warship go fuck yourself and I need ammunition, not a ride, one week of actual rebels fighting actual imperial forces has produced more good lines than the last six Star Wars movies combined. Most analysts agree that on a basic level, Russia's invasion is probably going to succeed. That is, Russia will probably reach some milestone that will allow them to say, there, invasion complete, we win. But then what? Nobody seems to know. Russia could install a puppet government, but then again, that government is going to get bounced like a broke guy at a strip club the minute Russia leaves. They could force Zelensky to sign a bullshit peace agreement, but then that peace agreement will have about as much force as a missive from a high school model UN conference. The push to Poland option, which you heard a lot about a few days ago, that seems to be literally running out of gas on Ukrainian highways as we speak. What is the plan here? Is there a plan? It makes sense to assume that Putin has a plan. In the interest of not underestimating your opponent, it is always good to act under the assumption that your adversary is a master strategist playing eight-dimensional chess and not some glue-sniffing halfwit who currently has both hands stuck inside of pickle jars. But sometimes the second thing will be true. And the Iraq War, a.k.a. the most salient lived military conflict for most Americans, the Iraq War provides a vivid example of just how poorly leaders sometimes play their hands. Now, Americans, of course, are well aware of the deeply unfunny comedy that was our invasion of Iraq. Fun side note, did you know that the invasion of Iraq happened almost exactly concurrently with the legendarily bad movie The Room? If you haven't seen The Room, stop what you're doing turn the podcast off, leave your job. I don't care if you're mid-surgery, leave your job and watch The Room. The Room is, it's maybe my favorite movie of all time. It is the best hate watch you will ever have. And also read the Wikipedia page about how that movie came to be. It is also the subject of the movie The Disaster Artist. There really can't be enough cultural content about the movie The Room, in my opinion. But at any rate, The Iraq War and The Room actually have a lot in common. Both were jaw-dropping disasters, both lit a huge pile of money on fire, and both have been analyzed for nearly two decades now by people trying to figure out how anything could ever go so wrong. Of course, the big difference between the two is that the war was not funny at all, while The Room might be the greatest comedy movie ever made. Maybe. It's got scenes like this one. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. The most obvious lesson from Iraq, the one that I think a lot of people will assume that I'm going to, is that invasions are a lot easier than occupations. Anyone who hadn't learned this lesson from, say, Napoleon's occupation of Spain 
or the French occupation of Algeria, or any of the several odd dozen occupations of Afghanistan, they should have learned it from Iraq. Honestly, you can also learn this lesson from Risk. Any dumbass can take Asia. Not anyone can hold it. Risk teaches us this. It also teaches us, by the way, that Ukraine is definitely a distinct country. It is on the Risk map. Granted, it is bigger than both the United States of China. I don't know how official this map is, but it is on the map. It is a country in Europe, just like Scandinavia or that big blob they call Western Europe. So that's the obvious and true, I should add, lesson from Iraq. Occupations are hard. But I think there is another big lesson from Iraq that's relevant here. Instead of looking at the conflict through American eyes, I think we should try to see things from Saddam Hussein's point of view. To my knowledge, by the way, this is the only podcast encouraging people to see things from Saddam Hussein's point of view. As badly as the war went for the United States, it went a million times worse for Saddam Hussein in an odd bit of self-loathing hubris, if such a thing is possible. We tend to focus exclusively on American agency in the conflict while ignoring the truly remarkable role that Saddam Hussein played in his own downfall. In much of the popular memory, especially among people who are too young to remember the war, Iraq's weapons of mass destruction program was entirely a figment of George W. Bush's imagination. And it is true that by the time we invaded in 2003, Iraq's WMD program was not much more than a mayonnaise jar full of change on Saddam Hussein's nightstand labeled Anthrax Fund. But that hadn't always been the case. Iraq did once possess chemical weapons. Saddam Hussein used them in the Iran-Iraq war. He also used them against the Kurds in his own country. Iraq did deploy, though didn't use, biological weapons during the Gulf War, and they continued to pursue them into the mid-90s. Iraq's weapons of mass destruction program was basically CNC music factory. Long defunct by 2003, but definitely a big deal in the early 90s. And by the way, I agonized over that reference. I almost went with the Spin Doctors. I almost went with Four Non Blondes. Landed on CNC Music Factory. I hope and I pray I made the right call there. Right said Fred would have also worked. Anyway, the UN resolution that ended the Gulf War required Iraq to give up its chemical and biological weapons and to submit to international inspections. To back up the resolution, the UN continued to enforce the rather large sanctions package that had been imposed when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. The sanctions wouldn't be lifted until the inspectors completed their work. The sanctions quickly became extremely contentious. Saddam Hussein railed against them constantly. They also became a bludgeon used by anyone who was critical of the West. A highly contentious UNICEF report, and let me emphasize the phrase highly contentious, a UNICEF report said the sanctions were responsible for more than 500,000 child deaths. An Irish official who used to work for the UN called the sanctions genocide. Big words. As we assemble the quote-unquote mother of all sanctions packages against Russia, and to be clear, I think that we should, let's recall that what I guess would be the child of all sanctions packages, the sanctions against Iraq, those were thought to be extremely potent at the time. Iraq's defiance of the UN absolutely came at a cost. Saddam Hussein's refusal to let the United Nations Special Commission inspectors 
do their work became a perpetual cat and mouse game. He would let them work for a while, then he would declare a site off limits. He would kick the inspectors out of the country, and then he would let them back in several months later. In 1998, this escalated to open warfare. The United States and the United Kingdom bombed Iraq for four days. In addition to harassing the inspectors, Hussein embarked on a campaign of general roguishness, the not-sexy kind, general roguishness that led to several military responses. In 1993, we hit Iraq with cruise missiles after they tried to assassinate George H.W. Bush. In 1996, there was another cruise missile strike to deter Saddam Hussein from an offensive against the Kurdish town of Arbil. In the late 90s and early 2000s, Iraq repeatedly fired on coalition planes that were tasked with enforcing no-fly zones in the north and the south of the country. Saddam Hussein remained the object of Western attention by generally acting like a Batman villain, albeit minus the sartorial flair and ease with wordplay. This was weird, in hindsight. In hindsight, this was weird. The fact that Saddam Hussein wouldn't just lay low for a bit and let the inspectors finish their work so that sanctions could end and so that he could rebuild his country, including his military, that may have ultimately been the single biggest piece of evidence suggesting that he was developing weapons of mass destruction. By the time Colin Powell was at the UN in 2003, holding up vials of white powder and saying, this vial contains ordinary household cocaine, but imagine if it held anthrax. By that point, even people who were skeptical of Bush's claims assumed that Saddam Hussein was hiding something. I will admit that was certainly my view. Now, in fairness to me, I was a 22-year-old nobody. It would be accurate to call me not a major player. If the CIA ever showed up at the temp job where I was working and delivered a high-level intelligence briefing, then I confess I've forgotten that they did that. But I certainly know that I was not the only person who felt that Saddam Hussein's actions only made sense if he had a weapons program. That circumstantial evidence was a major factor drumming up support for the invasion. The Iraq War, to say the least, could not possibly have gone worse for Saddam Hussein. He was deposed. He was captured while hiding in a hole. Photos of him with severe bedhead were broadcast around the world. He was put on trial, convicted, and hanged by his enemies who taunted him by chanting the name of a rival cleric while he walked to the gallows. From Saddam Hussein's perspective... This was probably a worse outcome than anything he ever imagined. This wasn't like going bowling and rolling 20 straight gutter balls. This was like going bowling and somehow ending up on the cover of Time magazine under the heading, The New Face of Premature Ejaculation. It is hard to imagine things going much worse than that. Which begs the question, why did Saddam Hussein play his cards the way he did? That question baffles me to this day. And we basically know the answer. Saddam Hussein wanted the world, especially Iran, especially Iran, to think that he had WMDs so that he wouldn't appear weak. That is what he told the FBI after he was captured. But I am still flummoxed by this pretty straightforward explanation because it is such an unbelievable miscalculation. How could Saddam Hussein, even post-9-11, post-9-11, 
when the U.S. had shifted to war footing and was amassing troops in the Persian Gulf, how could he still see Iran as the greater threat? That seems like worrying about melanoma mid-shark attack. But that is the calculation he made. And any rationalization that could possibly be offered in his defense, rationalizations such as, oh, well, Iran was a threat, or he didn't think the U.S. was serious, those are countered by the reality that he was deposed, he was captured, and he was hanged. And that finally brings me to the big lesson I took from all that. Leaders sometimes miscalculate in ways that are just difficult to fathom. Let me be clear. It's not just that I didn't think Saddam Hussein would make that particular miscalculation. I didn't even imagine that miscalculation was possible. It didn't cross my mind. It didn't enter into the realm of possibilities as far as I was concerned. Now, sorry to be a backseat Saddam Hussein here, but I felt that the hazards of his cat-and-mouse game with the UN were so obvious, and the first-order costs were so high. Remember that the sanctions forbid him from importing military equipment, which is something you might want to do if you're trying to defer Iran. The costs were so obvious to me that it never even occurred to me that the whole thing might be a gigantic bluff. It's a level of miscalculation that I cannot begin to comprehend and I speak as a man who left his job right before a global pandemic and who once also owned a Microsoft Zune. And now to Ukraine. I am currently wondering how likely it is that Putin has made a Saddam Hussein-level miscalculation in Ukraine. Now, granted, caveat time, this may be wishful thinking on my part. I... <laughs> Really want to see a Ukraine rebuffs Russia, Putin gets overthrown, China cancels plans to invade Taiwan, triple play. I want to see that so badly that I know that I'm prone to seeing what I want to see in the extremely patchy evidence. Plus, all of us, including the media, of course, are rooting so hard for Ukraine that good news for Ukraine stories travel very quickly. Well, bad news for Ukraine stories are about as popular as ALF-themed erotic fiction. I am aware that my biases might be shading my perception. But, from where I sit, things do not look good for Russia. As I record this, Ukraine is still in possession of Kiev and Kharkov. Military analysts are starting to openly wonder if Russia might actually lose this war outright, not in an insurgency, but outright. The world is uniting behind Ukraine in ways that were inconceivable only a few days ago. The ruble has plummeted. At a minimum, the resolute defense that has been summoned by brave Ukrainians in the past several days will inspire Ukrainians going forward, and that will make any Russian occupation extremely bloody. Now, I did not think this invasion would even happen. Last month... I buttressed my credentials as the Detroit Lions of forecasting by saying that I thought Putin was bluffing. I made that prediction because, in my eyes, the benefit to Putin of keeping Ukraine within Russia's quote-unquote sphere of influence, what does that mean? Sphere of influence seemed minuscule next to the cost of invasion. I was quite obviously wrong about the invasion, 
Though I have not yet been proven wrong about the cost-benefit trade-off being way out of whack. If Putin thought that Russia's quote-unquote shared history with Ukraine would cause them to be greeted as liberators, I've heard that before. He was wrong in a way that cannot be expressed in the English language. From Russia's perspective, the invasion is clearly going somewhere between not great and horribly. If Putin has a workable plan, I do not know what it is. I am starting to wonder if we might actually be witnessing one of the greatest own goals in geopolitical history. Strangely, some people, even in this country, seem to kind of like dictators. The dictators get things done argument has become fashionable in the authoritarian curious circles of American politics, and there are absolutely authoritarian curious circles of American politics. You hear praise for dictators nonstop from Trump. Trump has the same amount of love for strongmen that people in the guy who plays Mr. Belvedere fan club had for Mr. Belvedere. Please Google that sketch if you haven't seen it. And if you have, watch it again. The guy who plays Mr. Belvedere fan club. And look, though I am a committed democracy fanboy, I do sort of understand the appeal of the dictator argument. It would, after all, be kind of nice to govern without checks and balances. I admit that I have been at public meetings listening to some obnoxious NIMBY crap and thought, I'll bet Robert Mugabe never had to put up with this shit. But, of course, a person who has the ability to steamroll the opposition to enact a quote-unquote good decision can use that same power to enact a quote-unquote bad decision. And dictatorships might be especially prone to bad decisions. After all, not many people say, gee, boss, seems dicey to a dictator. People who do say that sort of thing tend to have short careers. Not many dictators replicate Lincoln's team of rivals approach. Very few dictators are into red teams. A much more typical method was actually broadcast live from Russia on the eve of the invasion. And it looked like this. It was one delusional weirdo, that would be Putin, with absolute power, interacting with terrified stooges whose only role in the government is to validate whatever potentially disastrous decision the dear leader pulled out of his ass that morning. In my opinion, that is a bad way to make decisions. And in fairness to Saddam Hussein, to my knowledge, this is the only podcast that strives to be fair to Saddam Hussein. But to be fair to Saddam Hussein, he is far from the only dictator whose incredibly poor judgment led to his downfall. The same thing was true of Charles I of England, of Charles X of France, probably many other people named Charles, Charles Manson, Charlie Tuna, Charlie Bucket, all of them monsters. But when I think incredible miscalculation, I do think of Iraq because it is the biggest mistake I have ever personally witnessed non-the-room division. Though, as I continue to watch what appears to be a five-star shit show unfolding in Ukraine, I am wondering for how much longer Iraq will be the biggest mistake I've ever witnessed. And that's the episode. I really can't express just how much I would love to see Ukraine hold out here 
how much I would love to see Putin overthrown by his own people. Maybe in the time in between when I taped this and when it airs, he will be overthrown, although I have come to learn that just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping dictators get overthrown. I mean, Castro, that guy lived to be like 150. He was eventually killed in a skydiving accident, I believe. Waiting for a dictator to be overthrown, that is a classic washed pot never boils situation. Nonetheless, oh, it would be good for the world if that happened. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. And of course, everything I write goes up at imightbewrong.substack.com. You can go there and access all of it because it is still completely free, too free, quite frankly. I don't know what I was thinking, but it's all free at the moment. Please subscribe and share the articles with your friends. That's much appreciated. And of course, I will be back next week with another episode and another chapter in the copyright-expired jazz odyssey that I have stumbled backwards into. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now. Bye.